If you'll take out this insert that says the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're looking at Revelation 10 and 11 today. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for the, this book, the book of Revelation, which uh, strains at our ability for, for exegesis, for interpreting it, and then stokes our imagination at the same time, inspires us and confuses us, maybe all in one, one, one go. Um, so we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, that we would see and understand clearly your work and our calling in this world in light of what you have done, are doing, and will do. Uh, I freely confess that uh, Revelation is dense. It's thorny. It's lots of twists and turns. So we can, be, we can falter in our explanation and our hearing. Help us, in spite of our frailty, to hear from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are covering quite a bit today, two chapters. Next week, only six verses, so we're giving you a break. Uh, but let's just jump in. This is Scripture today is going after our calling and what we're called to, you and me. Whatever situation we find ourselves in in life, whatever vocation we might have or might not have, it's speaking to us of our calling and then how God wraps that in to his redemptive work in this earth, whatever situation we happen to be in. This is another one of those interludes. If you remember, we had the seven seals of judgment, and then there was an interlude where God essentially said to his people, let me, let me step back, give you a, 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 a heaven's eye view that I've got you. You're secure. And then seven seals, uh, seven trumpets of judgment. And right before the seventh one, uh, the last trumpet, he gives us another interlude here, and he gives us a heaven's eye view that not just I've got you, but you're actually you have a mission in this world. You are commissioned to do something. You have a calling in this world. So we are going to look at Revelation 10, which is really the calling and commissioning of the Apostle John. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there. And then Revelation 11, which is for you and me, and all of God's people down through the ages. So let's read Revelation 10 together. We'll read all of that. I'll ask again for you to read the, the bolded part. This is just to keep us engaged a little bit. Here we go. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven spoke to me again, saying, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, and your 
And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told... Okay, a lot of interesting stuff there. Let me just walk through it in relatively brief fashion. John sees this mighty angel coming with all these signs of rescue and redemption. If you saw that there, there was fire, there is a cloud. That reminds us of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Exodus. There's a rainbow around his head. That reminds us of God rescuing Noah. And then his face is shining like the sun, which reminds us of Jesus in Revelation 1. It's caused some people to say, well, is this actually a picture of Christ, or is this just a mighty angel who's on commission from the Lord? We're not quite sure. But here's this mighty angel, and he has a scroll in his hand. It says a little scroll. And this is a place where English actually does us a little disservice, fails us a little bit, because in Greek, the word scroll and little scroll, biblia and Biblion and Bibloridion are actually interchangeable words. And actually, in Revelation 10, they're changed back and forth. Little scroll, scroll, little scroll, scroll. It wasn't a big distinction in their mind. It's the same word as back in Revelation 5, where there's a scroll, and nobody is worthy to open the scroll except for the Lamb, Jesus, who opens the seals, and you have the seals and all that. We've talked about that. So this is the scroll. We actually haven't seen the content of the scroll yet. What's written in the scroll? We don't know yet. Everything leading up to this is leading up to like, and here's the content of the scroll. But we haven't gotten there yet. Maybe we begin to get there in Revelation 11. So the angel comes and he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And in that order. What's significant about that? Well, maybe that those were areas of the earth affected by prior judgments, but more than that, we're going to be introduced in Revelation 13 to this demonic presence called the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. And by this angel coming with a scroll, setting his foot on the sea and on the earth, it's as to say the contents of this scroll, this message, are sovereign over whatever will come from this. So I want you to know up front, no matter how terrifying these things that are come in Revelation 13, this message is sovereign and powerful over those images. That's a good thing for us to know. And this, then the angel cries out with a loud voice like a lion, reminding us of the voice of Jesus that's strong and powerful, the Lion of Judah earlier in Revelation. And when he cries out, there are seven thunders that sound. And this is similar language to seven seals and seven trumpets and now seven thunders. So what we think happened is thunders this voice from heaven. Seven messages are given, and John knows what to do. He knows to write them down because he's done that before. And he begins to write them down, and then a voice says, no, don't write it down. It's like, okay, we'll put that aside. What's going on there? Well, we're not quite sure. Some, I think this might be a, a potential. Right, I'll stand off to the side because it's just a potential. Um, in the seven seals, you have uh, a, th- a fourth of the earth is affected. In the seven trumpets, you have a third of the earth is affected. And we've seen the intention of these is to, this, these judgments is to bring people to repentance. So maybe what you would expect with the seven, seven thunders is half of the earth is affected. But what we've just been told at the end of the trumpets is, in spite of this, people did not repent from their idolatries. So perhaps what this is saying is that judgment actually does not bring about repentance. We don't need to show you any more of this, though this... This is another perspective on it. We're not going to talk about that anymore. We're actually going to talk about what actually 
is instrumental in bringing people to repentance. And so the story moves on. The only thing left at this point is the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet we read about in our call to worship from 1 Corinthians 15. The final trumpet. And it says here, when that final trumpet blows, that's the seven trumpets. don't know if you knew that 1 Corinthians 15 and the trumpets of Revelation were connected, but there you go. Uh, when the seventh trumpet uh, sounds, the days of the mystery of God will be fulfilled. In the New Testament, the mystery of God is the gospel. So what this is saying is that when the final trumpet sounds, the work of the gospel in this earth, going out to the earth, is done. Right? It's the end. That's the end. But before that, the Lord says to John, I want to show you something and have you experience something. He says, take the scroll and eat it. That's not part of my job description. Eat the Bible, right? Um, uh, what is this? Again, we don't have to make up what this means. Where do we find the interpretation of most of the book of Revelation? Old Testament. Is there any place in the Old Testament where God commands someone to eat a scroll? Actually, there is. The prophet Ezekiel. When he's commissioned, he's commissioned to eat the scroll, which means you internalize the message. You internalize, you take it into yourself. You internalize the message. So John eats the message. <laughs> And it is sweet in his mouth, but then when he swallows it, it is bitter. It gives him a sour stomach. Why is that? This message that he's about to unfold is both sweet and bitter. It's sweet because it talks about the victory of the Lamb and the rescue of God's people. But it's also bitter because it talks about persecution and judgment. It's two sides of the same coin, both sweet and bitter. John eats it, so he internalizes it. The message is inside of him. And then he's told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So now it's in you. Now let it come out. And most commentators think that that's what then Revelation 11 to 22 is. This is the content of the scroll. Everything else has been leading up to this. And now this is the content of the scroll. And then what we see in Revelation 11 is this when the scroll begins to be talked about, proclaimed, prophesied. The main idea there, and I put this in your bulletin, in red, God redeems his people from all the nations so that they may bear prophetic witness to all the nations. God redeems his people from all the nations of the earth so that they may bear prophetic witness to all the nations of the earth. If we want to personalize that, and we do, I'm going to show you why in a second, we would say this. Christ has redeemed us from all the nations. Right? We are the nations. We are the Gentile stock, probably. Very few truly Jewish bloodlines in here. We are the Gentile. We are the nations. We've been redeemed out of that so that we may bear prophetic witness in our life in the way we love, in our attitudes, our dispositions, in the way we speak, in the way we invite people into that life so we may bear prophetic uh, witness to all the nations. And remember, we're already there. We just prayed for missionaries in, in Central Asia and in Africa. We think, oh, that's the nations. Okay. From where this was given, the island of Patmos or Israel, we are the nations. <laughs> So we are, look outside of your door, that's the nations. We are redeemed from the nations to bear prophetic witness in our life and in our words to the nations. 
to the Lordship of Christ and to the, the coming kingdom, we might say. So if you'll turn on the back of your insert here, I put a quote that I thought was very good from a man who is far smarter and well-researched than I am, named Richard Baucom. He's a British theologian. Is he Australian? I don't know. But uh, some accent that makes you sound really smart. Uh, he wrote this book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. So this is his take on Revelation 11. I'm very persuaded by it and, and, and more. The content of the scroll is not that faithful Christians are to suffer martyrdom or that their martyrdom will be their victory. These things are already clear. Like, we already know that. The new revelation is that their faithful witness and death is to be instrumental in the conversion of the nations of the world. Their victory is not simply their own salvation from a world doomed to judgment, as might appear from chapter 7, but the salvation of the nations. So, salvation isn't just God rescuing us out and protecting us, preserving us as a little safe cocoon. It goes on. God's kingdom is to come not simply by saving and elect people who acknowledge his rule from a rebellious world over which his kingdom prevails by extinguishing rebels. Rather, it is to come as the sacrificial witness of the elect people who already acknowledge God's rule brings the rebellious nations also to acknowledge this rule. God's kingdom's come. Let me just let me put that on the lower shelf for us. Uh, God's kingdom comes not just as he rescues us, but as he rescues us to be instrumental in the rescue of others. I don't know why he just didn't say that, but he's got more words. Um, the people of God have been redeemed from all the nations in order to bear prophetic witness to all the nations. So there you've got my proposition. Not very creative from me, but Richard is smarter. We have been arguing as we move through the book of Revelation that the symbolic portions are rich with theological meaning that need to be unpacked and interpreted. And these are theological meaning of dynamics of patterns, of motifs, of themes uh, that, that happen all through history. Now, some want to push the book of Revelation all out to the future, and I've encouraged you, let's resist that. There is future application of these patterns as there is their application right now of these patterns as there has been all through history. But we want to be disciplined to see these patterns happening in history or... Or we will miss actually the stated purpose of Revelation in the very first verse of Revelation, which says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He's, so Revelation is saying, this is happening soon, guys. And blessed are those in verse 3 who read it and do it now and then give this message to the seven churches that existed back then. If we push this all to the future, guess who it wasn't appropriate for? John, the seven churches, anybody in church history, you and me. It's just appropriate for people at some date in the future. So I want to be cautious that there is future application not to push this all into the future. These are dynamics that happen all through history. Here's one of them. Revelation 11, 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Again, 
Fortunately, we don't have to just wonder, what does this mean? Maybe we should make something up. No, in Zechariah 2, there's a vision of a man with a measuring stick who measures in there the city of Jerusalem. And there, what's communicated in Zechariah 2, those inside what is measured are protected by God's presence. In fact, God says, I will be as a wall of fire for you. <laughs> so people are coming to you. They're coming, it's like coming through a wall of fire, and that fire is my presence, meaning his holy presence will protect his people. So John here receives this call to measure the temple. Most scholars, almost all scholars, date this the book of Revelation, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That means we know this is a spiritual vision because there is no temple physical to measure anymore. So if he said, John, I want you to measure the physical temple, John would be like, uh, problem. It's not there anymore, right? It's destroyed. This reminds us of a vision in Ezekiel where Ezekiel's called to measure the temple, Ezekiel 41 and 42, as a sign of God's protection. But this is a little different. The only thing he is to measure is the inner part of the temple, the altar, and the people. The outer courts he is not to measure. That's the part where the people milled about and could worship. But the, in, the, the inner part, the temple, the altar, the people are measured. Uh, and that outer part will be trampled. And then it's, the outer part is equated to the holy city. In Revelation 21, the holy city is the new Jerusalem, the people of God, the bride. You are the holy city. Okay? So what we have here, if we put this together, is a trampling of the outer courts or the holy city for 42 months of the, the people of God, where the, the, the people of God went for 42 months. But the innermost reality, God's presence with his people, our worship of him is protected at the same time. These are not mutually exclusive realities. God's, God's people, again, this is a vision of the people of God, the church. Uh, are, there's a trampling, but at the same time there's a protection. These are not mutually exclusive realities. So even though comfort and freedom and life itself could be taken away, what God has communicated here, here's what will never be taken away. My presence with you. In fact, my presence with you can only intensify and increase. You can only experience my presence with you more and more and more. You're, in fact, because you're marked out by it. You're measured by it. Reminds us of God's people being marked in Revelation 7-3 by the seal of the Holy Spirit. Okay, 42 months. Let's talk about that just for a second. This introduces a time frame that shows up in Revelation a couple times. It shows up as 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, and it's drawing off a prophecy in Daniel, which is when it's called a time, times, and half a time. A year, two years, and a half a year. Three and a half years. What is this happening? Talking about. In Daniel, you go back to Daniel 9, this is a okay, it's a dense passage, but mm, let me just say this. That, that there's three and a half years is the last half of a symbolic week This spans the time when a, after sacrifice was cut off which is the sacrifice of Christ, until the end. It's a symbolic week of three and a half years. It's, it's, uh, it's the last half of a symbolic week. So you got the birth of Christ to a sacrifice, sacrifice of Christ to when he returns. It's not an actual week, of course. It's a symbolic week. We, you know, we, we've been saying that the symbols in Revelation have theological significance. We have to remember the numbers are also symbols. 
Now, in a STEM world, in a mathematical world, in a science world, we are normally think, well, 42 means 42. Okay, I want to say 42 does mean 42, except when it doesn't. And here's one of those places. We, it's a, it has a symbolic meaning. Now, we know Jesus has already done this for us. Remember when he's, they're asked how many, he's asked, how many times should I forgive? And he says, not seven times, which is what the Jew, Jewish rabbis taught, but 70 times seven. He did not mean that on the 491st time, you're like, good, I'm done. He didn't mean 490 literal. He meant perfectly, completely, you forgive completely as you've been completely forgiven. Seven times 70 is a picture of completeness, right? So numbers often in the Bible have theologically rich significance. We still kind of use this today. Uh, let me give one example. There's lots of them. But uh, at your job, you might get a 360 job review. You've heard of that, a 360 review. It doesn't mean that people are doing this around your feet, you know, or looking around your body. From th- it, it doesn't mean that they're giving 360 enumerated anything. It just means you're getting every perspective. It's, a, it's, a, it's symbolic for every single perspective, how you're doing this dynamic and this, all the measures we have, how are you doing it, from different perspectives of people in your life. It's a 360, right? Now, it's not actually 360. It's usually like, you know, 180 or something, but you get it. It's, what it, it's a symbolic number. So synthesize this together. This is a picture of the church being protected and in distress at the same time. You know who else said this would be the case? Jesus. In his high priestly prayer in John 7, he actually prayed for this very thing. On the back of your insert, this is Jesus praying uh, just before he's arrested. He says, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. That means they are not rooted in the world and drawing life from the world as I am not rooted in drawing life from the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to the cross that they may be empowered to live in the midst of this world, not separated, but, but with you and with me in this world, sanctified or set apart, shaped by your word, which is truth. That's exactly what Jesus prayed for. That's the picture of what's being pictured here. And in that, they, I'm going to say, we have a calling. Now, this is going to be confusing and then hopefully a little more clear. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, what in the world is this talking about? Our natural question is to say, to ask the question, who are these two witnesses? But we've seen in apocalyptic literature, that's not the right question. The right question is, why are they there and what are they doing? Right? Because it's a symbol. And I want to make this contention that these two witnesses are not individuals, but represent the people of God, the church, in its capacity as a faithful prophetic witness for Christ. These two witnesses are the church, which represents the church in its capacity as a faithful, authentic witness to Christ. 
Here's why. Now, I know. The futurists say there's two witnesses coming in the future. Guys, even the TV show Sleepy Hollow has the two witnesses in the future. Ichabod Crane and Ashley the Sheriff or whatever. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, they've been reading some interesting books. Uh, but my concern is futurism makes for good speculation and interesting TV, but it doesn't make for good following Jesus if this is actually about us right now. So they are to prophesy, speak forth for 1,260 days. That's the same 42 months we just heard. These, it says, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands. So already we know we're in symbolic territory because he says, oh, by the way, the two are four. Two olive trees and two lampstands. Like, how are we supposed to, that makes no sense, right? Unless you realize, oh, this is symbology, symbolic of a theological meaning. What's going on? What are the lampstands? Have we ever seen lampstands before in Revelation? Yes, we have. Revelation 2 and 3, the lampstands, seven lampstands are the seven churches. Remember, drawing from Zechariah 4, where the people of God are the lampstand, and in the lampstand is held the flame, which is identified as the Holy Spirit. So you have the church, as it's an authentic witness, in whom the Spirit dwells, and there's two of them. Now you might say, why two? Weren't there seven? Well, I don't know. Two of the seven were really struggling at that point. I'm not sure they even made it to Revelation 11, but... Um, in Jewish thought, from Deuteronomy 19, uh, testimony is confirmed not by one witness. Eyewitness testimony is only confirmed by two or more witnesses. So you need two witnesses. Therefore, there are two lampstands. Okay, what about the olive trees? What do we want to make up for that? That seems great. Like, okay, let's not do that. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Is there anything where two olive trees are identified as such? Yes, actually, also in Zechariah 4, the same exact prophecy where... These are people you've never heard of, but it'll, make him, it'll be important in a second. King Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua are called two olive trees that stand before the Lord of the earth. Catch that, the king and the high priest together. What do the, the, do the elders sing when Jesus takes the scroll? It's on the back of your insert. They cry this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, uh, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 1 also says Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. So, priests... In Christ, we present God to the world through our faithful witness and the world to God through faithful prayer on behalf of this world. And we do so as a kingdom who are confident that we have a king. So kingdom of priests, faithful witness, put that all together. These two witnesses are the church, the people of God, you, you. You are in Revelation 11. This is us as we bear faithful and authentic witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the midst of opposition. That's it. This is us. And it's our, our Christian family, our brothers and sisters from the last century, and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one after this. Right? As we bear faithful witness to the Lordship of Christ in the way we live and with the words we speak and the way we love 
and the way we treat our friends and the way we forgive and the way we love our enemies and the way we give our money and the way we raise our kids and the way we invite people into life that is life. That's the picture here. And this is done with great humility. Notice what they are wearing, these two witnesses, sackcloth. That's what Old Testament prophets wore when they were repenting for their sin and calling their people to repent for their sins. So, full of personal repentance, we we bring a message and testify to the Lordship of Christ first by repenting ourselves with profound humility. Why? Because the Lamb was slain for me and for you. What What was the cost for us joining in this mission? Jesus had to give his life. Jesus had to give his life to make me part of this kingdom of priests. So we might say that a Christian who thinks they are testifying to the Lordship of Christ, whether that's in the way they're living or the way they're speaking, but who aren't doing it with humility, what would we say? They're just wearing the wrong clothes. There's just not a biblical category for God's people holding forth with authentic witness for Christ and pride and arrogance at the same time. As if Jesus didn't have to die for me, but he has to die for you. There's just not a category for that. And I know that that's, that's epidemic in our culture, perhaps. I don't know. I, you know, you don't have to spend too much time on social media to find somebody who, who might think that they're testifying to the Lordship of Christ, but not doing any humility. I'm sorry, they're just wearing the wrong clothes. Wait, we wear the clothes of humility and the clothes of the righteousness of Christ, but we're bleeding with humility. We're leading with humility. But even as humble, courageous, faithful witness, there is great power. Verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. What are they, what's this talking about? You don't remember, probably many of you, the cartoon I grew up on, He-Man. Remember He-Man? I am the power. Um, that, taken in abstraction, that might be what, how we're tempted to read that little passage right there. Oh, yeah, we got that power. We will, they're going to come against me. What am I going to do? Fire will pour forth from my mouth and I'll consume my foes. That's actually what online social media kind of looks like sometimes. But um, this is not what's being talked about. We have to, it has to be explained to us, but not to John, who's deep in the stories of the Old Testament. Realize this is just drawing allusions from the life of the prophet Elijah and the prophet Moses. As they're combating the idolatries of their day, these different You can look at the cross-references. And in Revelation, anything that comes forth from the mouth of God's people is either the testimony of Christ or the Word of God. That's it. So this isn't a call to flame people. (laughs) It's just saying that the power resident in the people of God is the same power that was resident in Elijah and Moses. It's the Spirit of God. But this witness is resisted and not just by people. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies, I just say this, in Greek, really, that's a singular, their dead body, 
their plural dead body may also be a sign that, oh, this is a collective singular, not two people, but one entity. Uh, their dead body will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So the, the, remember that John's hearing this testimony. He's not seeing this one. They finish the testimony, and what happens is this beast comes up and kills him. We'll get to the beast in Revelation 13. So they complete the message, which is completed by testifying to the lordship of Christ, calling people to repentance. They're pounced on by the, birth, the beast. It kills them. So this is a picture of martyrdom. Again, these are dynamics that operate in history. So there is the church with its dead body in the great city, which is a symbol. We know that's a symbol because it's called symbolically. It's Sodom and Egypt, which wasn't even a city, but a country, <laughs> and Jerusalem, where Christ was killed. This together is what St. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, called the city of man. That collection of power, of pride, selfishness, and unbelief that stands against the lordship of Christ and sweeps people up into it and has many expressions in history, be that the crucifixion of Jesus, be that philosophies that, that throw off the lordship of Christ, be that uh, dictatorial governments, be that anything down through history, even in your life, be that friends who make fun of you for following Jesus. This is expressions of this. What we want to see here is there's actually real battle and real conflict in this life. If there's nothing else we take from a series on Revelation, which looks to span a few months at least, we don't know how long it's going, but um, to realize that we were born into a world at war, that there is a real enemy that actually does not want you to follow Christ or follow Christ as weakly as possible, who does not want your children to follow Jesus. There's a real enemy who does not want our neighbors to follow Christ, our coworkers to follow Christ, and does not want the church of God to reflect Jesus in any way. There's a real enemy. Now, you don't have to believe that, but it just puts you at odds with what the Scripture is revealing in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's real conflict, and sometimes the church does get overcome. Right? The gospel loses effect, apparently, in places over time. Maybe it's uh, waning in America right now. The gospel dwindles out in families. In, in Christian movements, the gospel dwindles out sometimes. Sometimes by, it's by action of governing authorities, but oftentimes it's just by rot from the inside out. As we, you know, through idolatry or being co-opted by the spirit of the age or the desire for comfort or just being fearful, whatever happened in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So you probably sense this. There's a very strong call to the lordship of Jesus Christ in this passage. And it's, I was meditating on this was this week, and I thought, you know, we don't. We often say we don't have much persecution here, and that, I mean, I'm thankful for that. We praise God for that. I do wonder, however, if it's not a good thing. It's a, if it may be a bad thing that we don't have much persecution. Here's why: maybe we don't have much persecution because we don't need much persecution to silence our witness to Christ. Maybe in our environment, faithful witness to Christ in our life, the way we live and the way we speak can be compromised, softened, or silenced with far less effort than outright persecution. Maybe in our environment, our witness to Christ can be compromised, softened, or silenced simply by our addiction to comfort. 
or our confusion of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the United States of America or our simple fear of man and not wanting to be seen as out of step with the culture or maybe just our desire for security. Those things are very effective in compromising, silencing the authentic witness of Christ in God's people. And maybe Satan just doesn't need to work that hard in North America right now. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's compromised, softened, and silenced as we teach our children that what's really important, what's really important is that you do super good at sports. Or you do really well in school, so you get a really good interest to a college, you get a really good job, so you have a really good career and be comfortable and safe. How do we know that's really important? Because that's what we talk about. That's what we brag about to our friends. That's what we celebrate in our families. That's what we spend our money on. That's what we spend our time on. And you know who I'm speaking to first? Me. As one who's raised five kids, four of whom are gone, and I just look back and say, was I celebrating the right things? Was I celebrating the right things? Sometimes what's really important is no matter how well you do in sports or how well you do in school, that you live a life that holds forth an authentic witness to Jesus Christ in the way you live and love and speak. Not if you can get open off a screen for a three-pointer. Like, that might be important, but, like, that's... Are you going to live as a follower of Christ, as a basketball player, as a soccer player, as a student? Like, I just, I do think about that. Like, what am I celebrating with my kids? What are we strategizing with our kids of, of how to do? Hold forth a witness to Christ in our life and in our words or just get ourselves in a position where we can be secure and happy. So if you've got time, parents, <laughs> now's the time, right? Now's the time. It's easier just to say, I don't really want conflict with the city of man. And if you don't want conflict with the city of man, it's very easy to understand which way to go. Now, some of you, I might have said that, and you're like, crap, I've totally blown it as a parent, okay? Uh, oh, Jesus' covenant mercy is good. He is a, God is a much better father than I am, okay? He knows how to pursue your children better than you ever did or ever will or ever can. So we pray if we've, like, we've let some water go into the bridge. What we do? We pray for God to work in that water, okay? We're good. But partner with him now as you have little ones shaping them, to their actual calling in this world. Okay, I have no idea where I am. Uh, I, not living in that story is just too small. There's another way that's far more interesting. Let's look at verse 9. For three and a half, okay, we expect, John expects to hear the word years here because it said 42 months, 1,260 days. That's three and a half years, but he doesn't hear years, he hears days. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, literally dead body, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. That's public shaming. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets, the church, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So again, he's expecting to hear three and a half years. No, it's days. It's not nearly as long as we thought. Oh my, something as, as amazing is about to happen. It's much shorter there is rejoicing over evil, but, look at verse 11, but after three and a half 
days a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here we have a picture of the resilience of the church of God through the Holy Spirit. The breath of life entered them is straight out of Ezekiel's prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a phrase for the Holy Spirit. I preached on it on November 6th. Go back and listen to it. This is God giving life by His Spirit to His people. If you're in Christ and believe in Him and look to Him as a Savior, He has done that for you. That same Spirit continues to give us life continues to give the church. The church is resurgent over and over and over again. Even if it looks like it's been destroyed, it keeps getting up from the dead over and over and over again. It's happened all through history. Empower, this is the same spirit that keeps giving vibrancy. They hear a call to come up here. We don't have to make up in our heads what that means. God has already used that phrase in Revelation when he tells John, come up here in Revelation 4, and John gets a vision from heaven's perspective. This is a call for God's people re-energized by the Spirit to see things from his perspective, and they're re-energized again. Maybe they saw the content of this vision. And the cloud, remember, is God's glory presence. It's his presence. They come to God. They're enveloped in his presence. So this is a rejuvenation of the people of God in the face of persecution and opposition over and over and over again. And we know this happens. Think of how many persecutions have happened in church history. And we've gone from one solitary figure on a cross in about AD 30 to one-third of the world professing his name. It's happening. And then the destruction comes. I don't have time to look at all this. But uh, look back at 1 Kings I can't remember where it is. 7,000, let me just say, the destruction falls on a surprisingly few amount of people. One-tenth. This work of God with the resurgent work of his church is surprisingly effective in the lives of those who don't yet profess Christ. That's the dynamic that's happening in history. God's people hold forth. They are pressed against an opposition, they seem like they're overcome, and there's a resurgence by the Spirit, and more people come to faith. And then there's a, the, the beast rises up and does the same thing as happens over and over and over again in history, until one day when it doesn't anymore. The seventh trumpet sounds. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom in this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The end. And that's the end of the seventh trumpet. So, in this whole, pra- this whole passage, before the end, God pulls back and says, I want you to know that you're protected, 
and you're commissioned. There will be times when it looks like you're overcome. Remember your Lord Jesus who himself was crucified in that holy city or that city of man. And that same spirit who raised him from the dead, according to Revelation 8, is in you and he keeps raising you over and over. Even at times in our life, it looks like the grace of Jesus loses power because there's these big dark spots and blind spots in our life. Even things we thought were dealt with come back. It looks like the, the grace of God just ebbs away. In different parts of our world, it looks like the effect of the gospel goes away, This just goes out to see some. It looks like it, it weakens. And I want us to say, okay, that can really happen. But we need to see it as a, as a wave going out, not the tide going out. Right? Just there are the waves... Then that waves in a, in, a, in a nation or part of the world might last 10 years, 100 years, 200 years. That's nothing to the Lord. It's the wave going out, not the tide. Here's what I mean. We've had opportunity in our life to, vi- to visit the Gulf Coast of Florida many times to visit family. Spent a lot of time on the beaches watching just waves come in and waves go out. And there's a little, little bird called sandpipers. They, they like chase the waves out to see what got washed up that they can eat. And as soon as the wave starts coming in, they run so like all day long, they're doing this. Wave, oh, wave's coming, you know. And when the tide's going out, they, they go out a little farther each time. It's like they've beat the wave. The wave goes out like, ha, and you stay away. And they get the food, you know. And then they got to run away because the wave comes back. That's when the wave's going out. And that scene, those sandpipers make more ground over and over and over again as the wave is going out. But then the tide turns. I haven't done this for a while, but so bear with me. There's a great spot in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. Um, it's an often fan favorite here, at least of mine. It's a fan favorite if only one person has it as a favorite. But um, where Gandalf, the wizard, in a lot of ways the hero, arguably the hero of the whole thing, is thought to be dead. He gave his life in sacrifice to protect his fellow travelers. Right? He dies fighting this demon character. It's very redemptive. He goes down this pit, fights this demon. They all assume him to be dead, and they move on with their mission. But things are very dark. Things are so dark that it doesn't seem like anything will overcome the darkness. And they, uh, darkness is creeping over all of Middle Earth, and it looks like evil will win. And they're dispirited. And then Gandalf comes back to them. He hasn't been killed. They don't recognize him at first, but he's been transformed. He's been changed. And some things have happened they don't know about. Backstory that you don't need to know about. But um, Gandalf says, in the book at least, we meet again at the turn of the tide. A great battle will rage, but the tide has turned. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus was the turning of the tide. And since Christ walked out of the tomb, on Easter morning, the tide has been coming in in this world. Sometimes the waves go out even when the tide is coming in, and it looks like ground is lost. If it's 10 years, if it's 200 years, it doesn't matter to the Lord. The tide is coming in. And one day, Revel- or Isaiah 11 says, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And guys, you're part of that story. I'm part of that story. 
and we simply participate in that story by in our little tiny daily lives and the relationships we have and the work we do or the work we don't do, the vocation we have or don't have, we bear faithful witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the way we live, the way we love, the way we speak, the way we invite others into that life. Jesus gives us grace over and over and over again to do this. One of the ways we celebrate and receive that on a weekly basis over and over and over again as we come to the table. If he has done this renewing work in you, I want you to come to the table. I want you to be strengthened to give a 360 to your life (laughs) and say, where can I be more attentive to living in the grace that is mine in Christ and simply reflecting his lordship in the way I live, the way I speak? Maybe it's the way I talk to my kids, my spouse, Maybe it's the way I react to that particularly annoying coworker. Maybe it's finally having that conversation with a friend that I know is lost in searching. Where is it? Jesus gives us grace for that. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to come to the table. I want to pray, and I'll invite you to go to the back.